Jesus says to you, he says to us, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Welcome to Park Church. We are really glad that you are here with us this morning. My name is Matt. I'm a pastor on staff. Those are not my words. Those, those are Jesus' words addressed to us, addressed to you. It's a standing invitation to come to him with the burdens, with the hard things, with the issues that we face that we'd rather hide. It's a standing invitation to come to him for rest, for peace, for comfort, for healing. If you are new with us this morning or if you are visiting, you've entered into kind of a heavy, kind of a difficult week here at Park Church as Paul um, alluded to earlier. There's no kind of secret there. This morning we're talking about one of the more difficult things to talk about. We're talking about faith and suicide. If you are uh, new, I want to get you a little caught up on where we've been together as a community so far. Throughout this fall, we've been asking uh, big questions, hard questions, talking about tough issues, the kind of things that make us feel like we actually are all alone like no one else could possibly know what it's like to be us. And uh, these are the kind of issues that force us to think, yes, we should actually be all, like, questions like, um, will I ever be good enough? Talking about things like shame. We've talked about addiction. We talked about grief. One of those topics that no one likes to talk about, grief. We, we tackled that head on here. We talked about um, loneliness. We talked about isolation. We talked about unforgiveness. When will the resentment, when will that hurt, when will that anger go away that keeps getting in the way of our lives? Throughout this series, we have heard uh, the call to come to Jesus. We have heard that we're never quite alone in these things. In each of these topics, though, they want to make us feel like we're all alone. And that's where these things do their worst. That's where these things do their damage. They're like a kind of fungus that grows especially well in the dark. And when these things can cast us to the edge of our families or of society or of the church or of our schools or wherever we are, when these things are successful in casting us out like that, that's where they do their damage. That's where they imprison us. That's where they ruin our lives. And together as a church this fall, we have said no to that approach to things. We have said this needs to be a place where we can talk about these things openly, where we can hear a different word on them um, for two reasons. One is because it's just, it's true that you're not alone in these things. One of the things we wanted to do is said, look around the room. Look at the people who are, who are with you in this. Their problems might not be your problems, and they might not be my problems, but we've all got problems. We all come to the table with problems. You're never actually alone because look around. Look at the brother and sister next to you who are there for you.
But the real reason that you're not alone is because we believe God is with you. God came uh, in Jesus and extended that invitation that I read to you to make it so that you did have someone to go to with these burdens, with the things that make you weary, and you can find rest in God. This morning, we're going to tackle what is, um, what is one of the more difficult things to talk about. And it's difficult because if you've ever been personally affected by suicide, you know how painful it is. But it's also difficult because it's just something that we, that we don't like to talk about. As a culture, as a society, we don't like to talk about it. The only time we do is when, um, is when it happens in someone famous. But it matters here at Park Church. Um, it matters not just because we care about people and we care about life and we don't want to see people take their own lives, but it also matters here because we have a sort of mixed history, an unfortunate history with suicide in this community. And you might not know that. When we first started out here, we were really a, a group of young adults who were reaching out to a group of high school students. And within the first two years of our existence together, we lost two people to suicide. A young man um, who was a young adult at the time, and then one of our, one of our high school girls. We had about 30, um, 30 to 40 kids at the time, and she was, she was just one of the girls. She was happy and smart, and um, she seemed like she was on top of everything, and uh, she seemed like she had it all together. We all went to bed that evening, whenever it was, thinking everything was okay, and we all woke up. I was a leader at the time. We all woke up to these horrible text messages and voicemails and phone calls um, that she had taken her own life. At that time, we did the only thing that we knew how to do, which was get the high school kids together, get us young adults together, and talk about it, and cry about it together, and grieve together, and laugh about her life, and pray together. And we did that, and we got through that together. And at that time, we decided that as a community, we would not shy away from talking about suicide with our high school kids. And for years and years and years, we did that. A little over a year ago now, there was another uh, high school student who took his own life from the Rumson Fairhaven region. And he didn't come to this church. He wasn't part of this community. But a lot of the high school kids who did come, um, they were personal friends with him and they knew him. And after that happened, our high school group, they gathered together. And the guy who was leading it at the time, Tom, he, um, he led them through the same kind of thing that we did 15 years ago. And I was there for it, and it was emotional and difficult, but it was good. And Christine was there for it, who you're going to meet her in a second. It was difficult, but it was good. And on that night, we said to ourselves as leaders, we have to return to having that conversation, not just with our high school students, but we have to have it with everyone. We have to have it on a Sunday morning. And so that's what, that's what we are doing this morning. We are just so blessed and so thankful to have someone like Christine uh, as part of this community. And I'm going to invite her up as I give her a little intro. Christine has not only been part of Park Church, along with her husband and her two kids, um, for quite some time now, but she is the chief medical officer for the uh, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. She's been featured on you know, CNN and the morning shows and BBC and New York Times and all those things. And she's addressed Congress and she's spoken to the White House. 
And this morning we have her uh, here with us. So give her a round of applause. We get this school set up. Um, so thank you, Christine, first for being here. And why don't you introduce yourself and tell us, tell us why suicide? Why, why devote your life's work to suicide? Sure. So I'm a psychiatrist by training, and I was busy um, in San Diego for 20 years treating patients and leading efforts in medical education. And um, my interest in suicide, certainly every mental health professional um, works with many, many people who become at risk at some point in, in the work together in therapy and in treatment. Um, for me, it was that, but it was actually more so that there was a series of personal experiences, starting with my own mental health struggles when I was in medical school to um, early in my, well, my residency and in my faculty career, I eventually became a dean in the medical school. And over a period of 15 years at University of California, San Diego, there were um, more than a dozen physicians who took their lives over that period of time. And um, because I was part of the leadership, um, one of my bosses, the, the big D dean of the medical school said, you know, get to the bottom of this and, and figure it out. You know, like, um, and, and that, that started an effort um, by a team of us to really search the science and the prevention science. Does culture and does community have anything to do with an individual's risk for suicide? And um, so I got involved in, in many different ways in leading an effort to prevent suicide of our own community of physicians. Um, and of course that permeates into the larger community as well and in your clinical work. Um, and, and through um, a set of circumstances, uh, I sort of, because of that experience, became um, known for being an expert in physician suicide prevention, um, which is a thing. Physicians die by suicide at a higher rate than the general population, actually. Um, and then five years ago, I had the opportunity to become the chief medical officer of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, we were pretty happily in our lives in San Diego, and we're like, uh, sure, we'll look at the job, but you know, my husband said, yeah, take their phone call, but we're not moving. <laughs> um, well, God had different plans, clearly, and so um, five years ago we moved and settled in Monmouth County, and um, I'm doing the work for AFSP, and um, just, just to let you know what that's all about, um, suicide is a public health issue, and so um, the work at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is involved with uh, funding research, advocating for change on the federal and state levels, uh, providing education about suicide prevention in schools and churches and um, healthcare settings, and um, providing support also <coughs> for people who are touched by suicide. That started out in the suicide prevention field mostly related to people who've experienced loss. But because stigma is going down wonderfully, people with their own what we call lived experience, their own history of an attempt or ideation, like Paul so powerfully shared with us last week, that's a story of lived experience when a person um, struggles and becomes suicidal and then finds their way through it. Um, 
so it's, it's an incredible thing that's happening in the world where people are realizing that all of those previous ways of understanding suicide don't really make sense. How can that make sense? And how, what can we do about it? Um, and so anyway, a shout out to my husband Jacques and our kids Luke and Camille who were game to move across country <laughs> and, um, and uh, are, are also hugely supportive of of me and my work because this is it is a different sort of job um, and our true mental health and suicide prevention mm. advocates in their mm. own right. I've only been to San Diego once but Monmouth County is just as nice. As <laughs> well actually we love it and part of the reason we love it is that um, we experience the culture here as more genuine mm. and authentic mm. and being part of this church was a big part of that actually. Um, where, where we can talk about the real deal. And mm. that's very important when it comes to our mental health. So a few months ago, I would imagine, I saw you on CNN talking with, I believe, Anderson Cooper, after um, Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade, you know, took their own lives, and it was quite public, and that was a, a short time of, of kind of public awareness about that. How, it seems like, suicide is becoming more prevalent, or it's at least becoming something that we, that we see bigger like, um, bursts of. Is that true, and how prevalent, how prevalent is it? Right, so let's just frame sort of the, um, the prevalence and some of the epidemiology around suicide. Suicide has been in the top 10 leading causes of death in the United States for many, many years, probably for millennia. Um, ever since we've started tracking suicide deaths, which is its own, um, its own field and is still Im improving um, because suicide was undercalled under for a long, long time mm. and still is to some extent, but, but not as much as before. Um, and so, so it has been, if we had realized that it is a health outcome, we would have understood that it is a preventable but leading cause of death that we, we didn't understand. And, um, and the rate has been trending up. Over the last 20 years, it's gone up a total in the United States of about 28%. That's about one to 2% per year is, is where we've been. But there have been um, ebbs and flows of suicide rates over the decades. And so in the late 80s, for example, the suicide rate was about the same as it is now. So there, we, but we are very, very concerned that it's been on the rise over these past 20 years. Um, I'll just say a few more things about sort of um, <coughs> demographics and, and trends. Among every age group, um, the rate has been going up. And that includes teens, that includes elderly, but that in includes middle-aged Americans the most. The, the rate has been the steepest among that group. And middle-aged white men account for the majority of suicide deaths, actually. Um, the ratio of male to female suicide is about four to one, um, although um, struggles and attempts are, are prevalent through both genders. Um, and I guess the only other thing I want to say about kind of prevalence is that when you think about, when we think about suicide, we don't just think about the end ultimate tragic outcome, which of course is the focus and a goal is to reduce that tragic loss of life. 
but there is a whole spectrum of suffering that leads up to that that have to be part of the com that has to be part of the conversation and so that includes people who think about suicide um, if you don't know this you should know that in any room you're in and if you're a student in high school in the high school age um, range in a one-year period one in five students will have thoughts and possibly serious thoughts of suicide. One in five. And so thinking of suicide isn't because the person is, wants to think about death. It's because they're suffering and they're trying to problem solve their situation. And, and in their search for what they might be able to come up with to solve their pain and their anguish, ending their life presents itself as one option. Now, not everybody will think about suicide. So there are some probably um, things in your genetics and in your early environment that might shape even if you do think of it. But suicidal thoughts are so prevalent that we don't consider those um, disease-driven, for lack of a better word. They're, but they indicate, just like a symptom of any kind of health issue, a symptom might tell you that there's something to pay attention to. And, and that's been a missing link for us, right? People who are thinking about suicide do not necessarily have the opportunity to talk about that to other people because of the stigma and the shame, and we haven't had good education, public health education, about this issue. So, so just to frame, um, the prevalence of suicidal thoughts is a lot more common in the community, um, a whole population of people. Um, the, the numbers in a year's time in our country, about um, 11 million people will seriously consider suicide in a one-year period. About one million people will attempt, and we lose 45,000 people to suicide each year. And uh, at least in the last year, we collected data. And a and, and little editorial comment about that. 45,000 people per year means, on average, 123 Americans take their lives each day. If any viral illness or any other issue presented itself, that were threatening American loss of life in that way. And in fact, um, what happened with the Zika virus is our government decided that is a threat to the American public and put $1 billion towards developing a vaccine. And that was before and ultimately nobody died from that. And, and, I, and that was the right thing to do. That is a correct public health approach. But because we have been confused about suicide and mental health, we have not, we've just become inured to it. And when it happens, we think it's a new thing. We're just, we're, we're behaving like a very uneducated population about this critically important issue. And, and to be fair, we didn't have science to inform it um, very well until recent couple of decades, I would even say. So that takes time, right, for science to translate mm. into um, knowing what to do, giving every, equipping every person, just like all of you probably know, to prevent heart disease, there are three things I should you know, keep in mind. What's my family history? Am I exercising? How's my cholesterol? Stress management, and then all those things, that's kind of like lay knowledge. That's what we need for mental health and for suicide prevention. Hmm. So earlier you said that we misunderstand it, and you, I mean, you kind of just talked about that more. Um, can you talk more about how we misunderstand it, but, but really more importantly, what is the right way to understand it? Right, so the, 
the correct way to understand suicide, and really informed by the science, is to understand that at, ultimately, suicide is a complex health outcome. And I'll just sort of break that down a little bit. So, so here's what we've been behaving like. We, we see what we can see, what's visible to us, and we assume that that's 100% of the data available. And it is what's available to us, it's what we can see. So when somebody takes their life, we think and think and think, what happened, what did I miss? And you go through all of the data that you had. Um, and, and that has misled us to believe that circumstances lead a person to take their life. And what the science shows is that there's a whole body of risk factors that interweave and sort of um, interplay with one another can temporarily dismantle a person's protective factors, their resilience and their healthy coping. And, um, and, and that sort of convergence of, of all of those underlying risk factors has been very invisible to us. And that's the part that we need to become smarter about. It has a lot to do with mental health. Um, so there's a form of research that's called psychological autopsy. And it means that after a person dies, you go back and do a deep dive into all of the uh, medical and psychological and behavioral and circumstantial things that were happening, legal records, everything. And that body of science tells us that mental health conditions are present the vast majority of the time, but in, oftentimes were not even recognized that that's what was going on in the person's life. But the complicated thing here is that it's not a one cause effect type of situation. And so many, many people experience depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, and thank goodness, the vast majority of them do not take their lives. So there have to be other factors that play in. Mm. Um, I, I would put it like this. Um, a person who has a very loaded family history for uh, early heart attack and death by heart disease, right? That person should know that they have to be extra vigilant about their cardiovascular health and the choices that they're making and accessing treatment. Um, and that same type of understanding sh we should be utilizing for our mental health and in fact our suicide risk. So there are known, uh, this is part of the science that's emerging, that there are genetic underpinnings certainly to mental health. We've known that for a long time. Now the newer science is showing us that there is also a genetic component to suicide risk that can even travel a bit outside the mental health condition specifically. Um, as with anything, including heart disease, if you have suicide in your family history, that does not destine you to um, being at risk for suicide. It means, though, that you do need to, to conduct your life in a way that's a bit more vigilant about your mental health, about um, optimizing all of that, and really thinking about how do I shore up my resilience and my protective factors. Mm. To go off script a little bit, um, when, when you say the stat that, actually, I don't know if you said it for this one or the first service, that, what was it, one in five high school students will at least consider suicide mm -hmm. over the course of the year. Is that yes. right? Yep. So for me, as a parent of three kids, that terrifies me, because my kids will be in high school someday, right? Um, could you talk about how to, how to, foster a home where this sort of talk is fair game? 
well, I could bring my family members up here too, including <laughs> our kids, because they've been living this. But basically, um, one thing that we did maybe a little differently is we noticed that the homes we grew up in, and even the friends in our church at the time, were big on things like, don't come out of your room until you put on your happy face. And, um, and an anger, an expression of anger, being extremely harshly disciplined, um, assuming that that's a willful, negative uh, response. And so we hopefully taught our kids that emotions are just as they are. They're, they indicate something. There's no judgment. It's what you do with them that, that can make all the difference. And where, where certainly having guardrails around appropriate behavior and um, those kinds of learnings uh, with our kids as they're growing up. So, you know, when our kids were really little, 18 months, two years old, they got their, some of their first words were, I feel sad. I feel mad because. And um, little two-year-old Luke could tell you all about it. <laughs> <laughs> and talking about it is freeing because it allows you to um, instead of those negative thoughts brewing in this vacuum of distortion and silence, you get to reality check it and be with somebody who can, at, at a minimum, listen to you and, and validate that, yeah, that sounds really hard. Sounds like that hurt you. Um, and just that alone is so helpful. Um, so, you know, in the home, I think, you know, obviously those messages of, Nothing you can do um, and no challenge you face is going to be too um, big for our love for you. We'll get through it together. Um, now it might be hard and gritty, but, but that's the underlying theme, to know that that's the foundation of this family. And when you grow up with that as your foundation of understanding who you are in the world and who you are in relationship to other people, the hope is that, of course, everybody will face challenges, but that, that if there are any risk factors brewing, like a mental health condition, um, or increasing substance use, or contagion effect from something they're witnessing in the media or in their school environment, that there will be avenues to, to mitigate those, those risk factors that are otherwise presenting danger. So we can, we can do a lot of that in the home. Um, and I will say it, it's important also to know that while we, we know that from a public health perspective, suicide is a generally preventable cause of death, we can say the same thing about, for example, heart disease. There are things one can do. Does that mean it will eradicate heart disease mortality? No. And the same thing is true for suicide. So if you are a loss survivor, you do not need to heap additional coals of guilt on your head for what you may or may not have done um, at the time. We are all figuring it out and learning, and this is part of the public health um, process, is to educate the public so that we can, we can work through these things together and get better and better um, at individually how to take care of our own mental health and how to live it out in every way. I mean, it's a really different and radical thing to figure out how to make policy change in a workplace that is pro-suicide prevention. That's happening now in many workplaces. How to do that in a school or a college setting. Um, those are really exciting changes that are happening in the world. I really appreciate all of that. I, I love the way you talked about um, like 
imagine a family where the foundation is mom and dad love you, nothing's ever going to change that. You can't do anything to be out of the bounds of that love. Um, that's, I actually know Christine well enough to know that's the way she thinks of faith also. But that's the way we certainly here at Park Church think um, about our foundation. As people who are trying to follow after Jesus, God loves you, and it is boundless. And there's nothing really that we can do that's going to be outside of the bounds of his love. And he came to forgive and to give himself to make sure that nothing ever got between us. Um, imagine a church. Imagine a family. Imagine a group. Imagine your life as one that operates according to that. That God is with you. That God loves you. That God has given everything um, to be yours and for you to be his. And that's, that's, that's my soapbox. But um, that's what we're about here at Park Church. When we were talking a few weeks ago, I used the phrase commit suicide. Can you talk for a minute about why that's not the best choice of language? Sure, right. So what's been happening in this world of advocacy and the movement, um, I'll just give you a little glimpse of that. Uh, my organization started something called the Out of the Darkness Suicide Prevention Walks about 15 years ago. And at the time, we really weren't sure if a single you know, group would come out for it because it was so highly stigmatized. Families were just not talking about it, not really able. There wasn't a language to talk about it. And over these years, it has been the second fastest growing walk event in the nation for, um, for several years. And that's because 55% of the American public is touched by suicide and does want to come out and, and talk about it. So, um, all of these, you know, at the walks, it's a very powerful experience. If you've never been to one, if you have an interest, just show up. There's no fundraising minimum for our community out of the darkness walks. And um, people are speaking out. It's very, very empowering. I'll, I'll say something about that later. But um, so in that movement, people who've experienced loss and people who have struggled themselves are having the opportunity to explain what their life has been like, what the impact has been on them, and what they need in the world in order to live higher quality lives. Um, that includes things like mental health parity and insurance and lots of different things in workplaces and in schools so that mental health is treated like actual health instead of like um, bad behavior. So those advocates, and including myself, um, were able to become sensitized that when the term commit suicide is used, it, is, it implies that it's a crime or it's a sin. Commit murder, commit a sin, commit adultery. And in fact, suicide was understood to be a sin and, and possibly in some churches these days still is. It's a very, very old-fashioned, uninformed way of thinking because, uh, again, the science is telling us that there are a whole set of health and genetics and things around that that um, we've been very confused that it's the moment of a person's decision, and that's the only way we've, we've understood it, rather than this culmination and swirl storm of risk factors that ultimately lead to that. So they've told us that, that kind of like sends a really punitive and, and um, strange message to think that my loved one like, committed a crime. Mm -hmm. And so um, plain language is preferred. Uh, things like died by suicide. I mean, that's, that's kind of a newer phrase, but you might, other health outcomes, the person died of cancer or died of, um, well, we could say the person died by suicide. 
um, killed him herself, ended her life. Those are the plain language ways to talk about suicide. We don't really, we prefer also not to say failed attempt or successful attempt, because that implies some weird message about succeeding if you die by suicide. Um, and in fact, the term attempt implies that they did not die, that it was, a, it was a, an attempt that they lived through. Mm. Um, in 2016, the Associated Press changed their style book recommendation according to these language guidelines. So you'll notice that in some of the media, that um, print and, and TV, that um, it's catching on. But it will take some time because it's so entrenched in, in our lexicon. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate the comments about, about um, commit and commit and suicide, commit and sin, and how, how complex this issue really is when it comes to um, faith, suicide, sin. Clearly, God is anti-suicide. Yeah. God is pro-life. God is, God is the giver of life. Um, so it's a complex issue. Our, our, our role as a community in this, um, as a community of people who are formed by the God who gives life, is a particular role. Um, can you talk about what, really what the role of community and what the role of well, let's talk about community first and then church second. Um, what is the role of community in suicide prevention? Well, that's, that's really where the meat is in terms of driving down the suicide rate, is that this is, these are issues going on in our homes, in our communities, and, and we, can all be, we can all do several things. So we say everyone has a role to play in suicide prevention. And that could start with simply becoming someone in your home or in your community where you are able to have conversations that are actually about the real deal of what somebody is facing. It, it truly starts with that basic of a thing, but we have been so bizarrely avoidant of approaching suffering because we're not sure what to say and we don't want to make them worse and we don't want to offend people and be intrusive. But that has got to go by the wayside because the reality is we all, every single one of us, part of the human condition is that we face challenges. We carry burdens. And, but we assume, because we haven't been so good at talking about it, that we're alone in that experience. And like Matt was saying earlier, we are not alone. And once you start talking about it, or if you're in the helping position, inviting people to talk about what they're actually experiencing, that what their distress is, they are able to start processing and understanding that some of their, their thinking does not make sense. We all have these things called automatic negative thoughts, and we don't even know we're having them. So those are based on our early upbringing and other things. And, and that, so an example of that might be um, a student gets uh, a grade on the test that they didn't want to get. And their automatic thought that might be very unconscious to them is, I'm a failure. I'll never amount to anything. They don't even know that they just had that thought. But then what pops out next is a behavior that's partially driven by that thought. So when we start talking about these things, and certainly therapy is a, an important tool that we all actually probably should be using at different points in our lives, those are the ways that we, we kind of tease that apart and can start living um, and connecting with others in a way that simply is more honest and more um, we, we long for deep connections. We were created for that. Mm. And yet we've been limiting ourselves from having that. Mm. So, so 
when it comes to preventing suicide, I would say get a little bit of education, learn the warning signs, start learn how to have a caring conversation, how to set that up. I can talk a little bit about that um, if that's of interest. And be that person who becomes sensitized to the fact that these, just, these issues, mental health and suicidal thoughts and struggles, simply exist. And if you're, not, if you're like living in this bubble where you think, that, I, I don't, that doesn't make sense to me. I've had primary care doctors say, I don't have any patients with depression. Guess what? <laughs> that means they're not talking about it with you, and you are not aware enough to pick up on their cues. So you know, part of the deal is becoming sensitized to realize that people will not hand this to you on a platter. They're experiencing it internally, and you have to go by learning the warning signs, but also trusting your instinct that their patterns of behavior in your loved ones in particular, but even people you work with, you know their patterns. We are actually very predictable human creatures in terms of um, whether we tend to be late or early, or you know, how we might spend a free hour. Uh, we tend to repeat things because we are wired the way we're wired. So when you notice that something is a little different, um, that let's say somebody who normally really does not lose their temper is now becoming irritable and losing their temper, that means something. We have been so um, quick to write it off to the stress of the day, and be probably because we actually don't know what to say and how to deal with it. We just, even if we get really worried about somebody, right? Think about that. If you've ever been in that circumstance where you're like, oh my goodness, I'm really worried about so-and-so. They seem down, they're withdrawing, they're not in their usual activities. They're even talking about little, you know, feeling overwhelmed or hopeless. But you go, uh, uh, it, it's going to be fine, I'll just, and, or what we do is we talk to other people about that person, like, you know, your caring network of people. Everybody's talking over here, and nobody's talking to the person. So, um, so these are the things that we can equip ourselves with to, um, to just become that community that takes the stigma out of suffering, out of mental health, that is able to process all of this in a way that's healthy and supportive, um, and you have to kind of set up those conversations that way, to mm. say, I'm here to support you and not to judge you. In fact, I really actually just want to understand where you're coming from and what you're experiencing. And that does require some active listening skills, which we haven't necessarily cultivated in our culture very well. It means you ask an open-ended question, and then you zip it and listen. And you follow their cues um, to continue asking. A simple phrase would be, tell me more about that. I hear you saying this. I want to learn more about that. Um, and asking the question if a person is feeling suicidal or thinking of suicide is a good thing to do. There's plenty of research that shows that does not create more risk where it wasn't or if somebody is having thoughts, there's a good chance they have not been able to share that with anybody. And by talking about it, they can bring it into the light and get some support for it. And that can be such a game changer it's been, we just haven't understood very well that keeping things locked up inside or keeping secrets produces suffering and, and um, it kind of is almost like if you think about an abscess, a wound, an infection that gets walled off and it can become incredibly toxic and, and lethal, actually deadly, if it's not sort of let out and um, Debrided, and in, so it, it's like that with with regard to our 
um, our internal experiences. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you. Our, our time is about to wrap up, but would you mind kind of giving us a takeaway um, or some takeaways? Yeah. Sure. Um, I would start with that mental health is a part of health. So we can just start there and, and really try to let that sink in, that we have brains that are organs in our body. And like every other organ in our body, our health gets shaped around the genetics of that, the physical organ, and the interaction with our environment. That is real. So mental health is real and doesn't need to be shamed in any way. The second would be that suicide is a health-related outcome. Yes, it's complex, but try to catch yourself from making the usual assumptions um, that are based on our culture that's been highly stigmatized and not informed by science. There's a different way to look at it. And just be curious about that. Mm -hmm. and, and the last is what we were just talking about, that everyone has a role to play. And um, it's, it's an incredibly hopeful thing to know that by simply increasing our connections with each other, we can reduce the risk of suicide in a population. That's what the research shows. Well, thank you, Christine. And um, yeah, a lot to think about and a lot to go with. We're just so grateful and thank you. Thank you. Let's give her a hand. When you look at the life and the stories of Jesus as captured here in the New Testament, you look at the way that he encountered people. He interacted with people every day who had all sorts of issues, who brought the whole gamut to the table. Um, physical issues, emotional health issues, mental health, spiritual issues, moral issues. He encountered all sorts of people dealing with all sorts of issues. In his day, just as much as today, if not more, these people who struggled with these things were so pushed to the outside of their community. They were so excluded from religious life, from cultural life, from family, from friendships. Um, all of the rules that were in place in that day, all of the norms of that culture worked to push people into the shadows, to push them away. And the thing you notice about Jesus when you read story after story after story is time and time again, Jesus did the opposite. Jesus drew people in to himself. He didn't meet them with pushing them away. He didn't meet them with judgment. He didn't meet them um, as, as a burden. He met them with kindness. He met them with compassion. He met them with mercy. He met them with light in their darkness and hope in their hopelessness and healing where there was no healing. He met them with life in their death. When Jesus encountered people, he encountered them with love. That's the God who we follow here at Park Church. And I want to say just two things about the way Jesus encounters people with love. And the first thing is this. If you have never been met, been encountered by Jesus in that way. I want you to hear again the invitation that he extends to you. Come to me, all you who are weary and who are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. That is an invitation that stands for you to come to him for peace, for life, for forgiveness, for hope, for rest. 
He wants you to follow after him in a way that changes things for you, that changes your life, that transforms you, and that brings life out of death. And if you've never met Jesus like that, I want you to consider this morning coming to him like that. That's the first thing I'll say. But the second thing I'll say is this. If we are to be a people, as individuals but also as a community, who are following Jesus in this way, encountering people with love, I want all of us to ask real serious questions about ourselves that make us, um, that make us encounter and meet people and meet situations and issues and struggles differently. And you could think about this across the board, all different kinds of ways. Just as an individual, are you someone who is, who is approachable? Are you someone who, when someone brings you their problem, they're not going to be met with judgment or with an eye roll or with, oh, you're too big of a burden? Or are, are they going to meet in you compassion? Are they going to meet in you a listening ear? Are they going to meet in you um, the heart of someone who actually cares? If we are following Jesus, we simply must learn how to have hearts that, uh, that are compassionate like that. Following what, with what Christine said about just being parents, what kind of parents are we? Do your children know that there's nothing that they could ever do that would, that, would, that would banish them or that would separate them from your love? Do they know that? And when's the last time you told them that? Do they go about their day, their, their, their school? Do they go about their life knowing that, that, that there's that foundation in the home, that mom and dad love them? And a deeper level that God loves them in that way. Do they know that? As a teacher, as a youth worker, as someone who is just friends with people, um, do the people you encounter know that about you? I wonder what it would look like for your house to be the house in the neighborhood that's known for being like the safe place. That's a place of refuge when the world has gone crazy. I wonder what it would mean um, for your kids' friends to know that your parents might not, their parents might not be safe, but my friend's parents, they are safe to go to. What would that look like for you to be the safe parents for all your kids' friends? And as a church, as uh, the different groups that we have within the church, the different ministries, how are we at meeting people where they at? and creating openness and spaces to talk, making it so that everyone knows there is nothing that they could um, bring here that would, be too big, that would be too big for us to handle. How can, how can we uh, engage with and interact with and encounter the world like that differently? If we, if we are to be following Jesus in this particular way, that's our calling to use our creativity, to use our resources, to use our gifts, to use everything that we have to encounter people with the same love that Jesus encounters them with. And when they do that, they will hear through us that invitation to come, come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens. I want to wrap up this morning with a short story from the book of Acts. Acts is a book that takes place after Jesus was died and was raised from the dead. It tells the story of the first Christians. And there's a story in the book of Acts um, about a guy named Paul and a, and a man named Silas. And they were, they were imprisoned for all sorts of things. Um, and it's kind of a dramatic story, but it speaks to us at the heart of what we are supposed to be about, I think, as a church. Listen to what uh, 
the story says. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake, so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. God did that. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. What would it look like for you and for us to bear that message into the world around, into the brokenness of our families and our schools and our neighborhoods and wherever else we find ourselves. What would it mean for us to be people who bear that message? Don't harm yourself. We're all here. We're all here for you because God is here for you. Don't harm yourself. We are all here and we are. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are the giver of life and that you are Lord of life and that you have come to give life and to bring life and to make new life. We pray, God, we pray, God, for the heaviness of this message. We pray that you would make it so that we are people um, who can bear witness to life and to bring life to where there is only darkness and hopelessness and death. We pray that as a community and as individuals, you would empower us to be open, safe people, safe places, safe communities, um, for people to come and, and bring the worst of their worst. And not to find judgment, but to find hope and to find healing and to find life. God, that's what you want. And so we pray that you would help us along the way to follow you in that direction. Lord, for each and every one of us who, uh, who is struggling through some sort of mental illness or struggling through some sort of emotional issue or struggling through all of the myriad of risk factors that go into making us think it's a good idea to harm ourselves. We pray, God, that you would give us courage to talk to someone. We pray that you would give us um, hope where we can't quite see any. We pray that you would help us here in this room and listening um, Give us the courage to approach other people, like Christine said. Help us to approach people with mental and emotional health issues, just like we would any other kind of physical issue. God, we want this church, and not just Park Church, but all of the churches in this area, and indeed all of our communities. We want um, this place to be one of hope and of light and of life. And we pray, God, that you would give us Give us all the inspiration and all of the power and all of the gifts and all of the resources and everything that we need um, to prevent people from taking their own lives. And in its place, God, we pray that you would give new life. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior and our friend. We pray, God, that you would hear us now as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.